Welcome back to the show. This is Cassie Shu with the Hand to Shoulder Center uh, podcast. This is number 19 already. So we have a replacement for Steve. He decided he was going to go on vacation for this podcast. So uh, his replacement is Shelly Summer. She's a PT at our facility, at our clinic, and uh, she's going to introduce herself. Hi, everyone. My name is Shelly Summers. I graduated from PT school in 2013 and have been working full-time at Hand to Shoulder for the last nine years. I treat everything from the fingertip to the shoulder and into the cervical and thoracic spine. Um, Here at our clinic as well, I also treat and assist our amputee patients with assisting them in selecting a prosthetic clinic, discussing their prosthetic options, as well as uh, prosthetic training after they receive their device. In my time outside of the clinic, I live a pretty fast-paced life with my husband and two very active little kids. Yeah, Shelly's very busy with her kids, always running into sports and dance and all sorts of activities. So welcome to the show, Shelly. We're glad that you could join us today and replace Steve. Yes, thank you for having me. (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, Shelly, you also just recently achieved your CHT. Yes, I um, passed my CHT in November of last year, so that was a pretty big hurdle. Congratulations, and you uh, do a lot of dry needling with your patients. Yes, I've been dry needling for approximately, I'd say, around seven years, and love that as well. Good. Awesome. So, we have a very specific specialty joining us today for our show, uh, who you know very well, actually. Um, Can you tell our listeners who we're going to be interviewing? Yes, today we're going to have Arm Dynamics out of Maple Grove, Minnesota joining us. Pat and Jennifer are two individuals that I've worked with multiple times to assist our amputee patients with obtaining prosthetics. So we are going to be dissecting the process of who qualifies, how to obtain a prosthetic, and how to really train that patient using a prosthetic for this interview. So we hope you enjoy the show and thanks for joining us. All right, uh, Pat and Jennifer, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Good. Joining us from Minnesota today. What's the weather like up there? It's rainy and uh, warm. Well, <laughs> right. We have 50 degrees and raining, so we actually broke 50, uh, so that's exciting. The snow is melting here. Finally, we have robins and exactly. birds chirping. Yes, That's right. Spring is in the air. The sun will come out and flowers will grow. Right. Yes. Finally, spring. So, uh, Pat, why don't we start with you? Uh, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and kind of how you got your start with Arm Dynamics? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having us again. So, I, I'm Pat Priggy. I'm a certified prosthetist and a, a fellow of uh, the American Academy of Orthodontists Prosthetists. I'm also the uh, the clinical manager here at Arm Dynamics. I guess. Um, my start in prosthetics goes back to uh, to the late 90s. Uh, I started in doing everything upper limb, lower limb. I started in kind of a pediatric setting and then uh, eventually transitioned into a manufacturer's role where I was uh, doing education from uh, uh, the perspective of uh, teaching prosthetists how to fit these uh, these devices and then started specializing in, uh, in about 2000 doing just upper limb for most of my career, and uh, about 13 years ago, started with uh, with Arm Dynamics, and have been focused on just upper limb patient care ever since. So that's uh, that's kind of a, a short story, but um, really kind of find uh, passion in upper limb prosthetics. It's a unique patient population, and there's not a lot of us that uh, that specialize 
and uh, just doing upper limb prosthetics. And I feel fortunate to be able to do that. Well, great. And Jennifer, what about you? Yeah, so I'm Jennifer Peterson. I'm a physical therapist. I've been a therapist for about 30 years, but my career took kind of a, a change when I found out on ultrasound that my daughter, Amber, would be born um, missing her right hand. And yeah, so when I went to um, school for physical therapy, um, we had very little education on upper limb uh, prosthetic rehabilitation. So I had to go on a learning journey and had to figure out uh, what would be best for Amber. And um, through that process, um, I met Pat, who was working at Autobach at the time. Um, and so he was in a manufacturer role, but had a wealth of information about upper limb prosthetic rehabilitation. And he helped the local prosthetists here um, to get Amber fit at a very young age. And um, then just going through the process with Amber and learning more, it really became my passion. And I found out that Pat switched roles, uh, switched jobs. He went to Arm Dynamics. And at the time, Arm Dynamics wasn't here. He was um, working out of Iowa. So I looked up Arm Dynamics and I immediately liked the model of having a prosthetist and therapist working side by side. And I said to Pat, hey, if you ever open a clinic in the Minneapolis area, I'd love to be your therapist. Well, I had no idea that that was his plan. Yeah, and little did so, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's been um, almost 11 years since we opened the clinic in um, in Maple Grove. Um, we're part of a larger company, um, but um, I'm, I'm very, feel very fortunate to, to do this job. I'm not an amputee myself, but because of my daughter, I have a pretty good idea of what it's like to to live missing uh, a hand, and um, I'm happy to be able to help these people. Great. Can you guys tell us a little bit about your company, Arm Dynamics, your facilities, satellite locations, et cetera? Yeah, so, so it's a national company uh, based in California. There's no clinical operations in California, but they do have the, uh, the rest of the, um, the, the corporate structure is there. And so we have um, offices kind of scattered across the country in uh, six different locations and each of them basically housed the same sort of staff so we've got the the prosthetist the therapist and most facilities have a, a technician or a prosthetic assistant as well as some uh, administrative staff and and uh, uh, business development things like that uh, so they're they're small intimate facilities but uh, because we only focus on upper limb prosthetics that uh, that works really well for us but we have uh, labs where we build everything on site we've got uh, uh, the technical capabilities to um, create devices as well as repair devices, etc., um, right in in each of the offices. So we've got uh, um, we've got one in Portland, Oregon, and Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, um, Kansas City, Philadelphia, and then ours in Minneapolis. So it's a uh, it's great because we get we get the benefit of having all these offices, right? We get all and all of them focused on upper limb. Plus, we've got colleagues that we can share experiences with and uh, learn and grow together on this uh, topic. So, yeah. And how many therapists do you have working for you? So in yeah. in Minneapolis, it's a, it's one. So each office has a therapist. Okay, so I see. Yeah, yeah. So each and, office has a prosthetist and a therapist. Correct. Yep. Okay. Great. Um, so what are the prosthetic options that patients can choose from? So when they come to your facility, 
Do you show them all the different options based on what their amputation is? Or how do you know what office to assign them to? Is it more like their region that they live in? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So so as far as the options go, there's we talk with uh, with the patients every time we meet them about um, kind of the, the, the six basic categories. And really the, the choice of the, the option is predicated on what the patient's goals are, right? And so if, uh, if you've got somebody that's working outdoors and they're in a, you know, very um, sort of an environmentally um, challenging uh, situation at work or whatever, you know, think about uh, a diesel mechanic or a farmer, somebody that's outdoors working in rugged conditions, that's going to be, you know, one type of device versus uh, uh, somebody that might work indoors or they're working mostly on activity, activities of daily living, that's going to be a different option. Um, so, so the basic categories are really um, nothing, which is always an option. Um, it sounds funny to have a prosthetic option be nothing, but the reality is that uh, people don't wear these devices 24/7. They put them on to uh, to accomplish their uh, their daily tasks, and then they take them off again. It's kind of like wearing shoes in that in that regard. Um, body powered devices, passive devices, myoelectric devices, hybrid devices, and activity specific. And each of those categories, there's, uh, there's, it's like the tip of the iceberg to just say body powered, and then the, uh, you know, all the rest of the options down below that are are quite lengthy, and and uh, we spend time literally teaching each uh, each individual patient about all of their options, and ultimately our goal is to educate them so that they can advocate for themselves and kind of be on board, if you will, with uh, with the choice of the device that makes the most sense for them. And uh, it's interesting, though, people will come in with um, maybe they'll have one type of device in mind. And as we go through the discussion, they realize that device is not going to help them. Or it's a device that they don't really want, or it's a device that uh, would cause all sorts of problems that they, that they weren't even aware of, right? And so what we try to do is really just uh, enable them to make a good decision for themselves. And then we back that and support it with uh, uh, the, the documentation and, and the justifications, things like that, that are necessary. And and certainly rely on you guys too to uh, to help with that because uh, you know we are a regional uh, facility and it's not always possible to uh, to do um, you know face to face meetings and so we rely on on uh, individuals like yourselves to uh, to help us with kind of gathering that that basic information what's best going to uh, what is going to be best for this patient so that they can accomplish their goals and everybody's goals are different right so um, it's it's a uh, it's quite a variety that uh, that we will. It, um, put out there for them to, to pick from. Jennifer, do you have any any uh, additional comments? Yeah, I would just like to say that, that there's not one prosthetic device that can replace a natural hand. Our hands are amazing. And so some people really need to have multiple devices, but what we'd like to do is we'd like to pick the device that's going to help them most with their function first. And so we talk about having this bubble of activity that's sitting on the table in front of them before their amputation, all the things that they're able to do in life. And then they have an amputation and that bubble just shrinks. And then um, they start figuring out how they can do things, maybe one-handed or, or using their body in different ways so that that bubble increases a little bit. But we need to figure out what device is going to increase that bubble of activity the most. And so that's often either a body-powered or a myoelectric device. And then after they're fit and they're trained and they're able to do a lot more activities, there's probably still other activities that they aren't able to do with the prosthesis. 
And then we want to look to see, well, what device do they need now to help them to fulfill that full bubble? Um, and so that might often be like an activity specific device. If the body power or the myoelectric isn't able to um, provide what is needed for that. Um, so the challenge with that is that insurance will often only pay for one device. And so we have to kind of look at how, how to go around that. But at first, we really want to focus on getting them that device that's going to meet most of their goals and get them back to functioning in life. Uh, Jennifer, you actually answered a little bit of my question. So while Pat was talking, I was thinking about, so I guess this depends on the payer source, but if you have a patient who's maybe a work comp, work comp would pay for their work device, but maybe not their home device. So how does that work in a situation when a patient needs a home device, work device? Do you just add different attachments to one or what's the thought process on that? So interestingly, I would say that workers' comp is probably the best about paying for multiple devices because if someone is hurt on the job, that injury is affecting all of their life and it really is the responsibility to get them back into life. Um, but um, there are situations where workers' comp doesn't want to pay for more than one device. Um, and so there are some situations where, let's say they have a myoelectric device that helps them at work and also helps them at home, but they need some additional attachments. Um, there, there are times that we can put attachments onto a myoelectric device that will allow them to do more activities, but a myoelectric isn't um, as rugged, and so you can't do like really heavy lifting, things like that. So there are ways that we can kind of try to combine devices, um, but it's not ideal. Um, Pat, you probably have some more to say about that. Yeah, I think you, you've described it pretty well. It's um, it is dependent upon the other uh, the the, uh, the payer source as to what uh, um, ultimately can can be provided. Um, one thing I'll say about that, I think it's ex it's extremely important for all of us to uh, to really be on the same page. If it's the, uh, the therapist, uh, you know, locally, if it's uh, if it's Jennifer myself, as well as the uh, the payer, you know, coming together and talking about uh, what is it that the patient needs, so that uh, that everybody's on the same page and feeling like um, we're not pulling and, and uh, pushing and you know trying to do things that are that are unnecessary, but really kind of working together to get uh, get at the uh, at the bottom line. And the bottom line is, you know, uh, can we get this patient as functional as possible? And I think. Um, I haven't met a person in in, uh, in work comp pair space at all that uh, that's ever said they don't need it. They've always said no. We want to get them back to uh, to their life, um, but tell us why we need to do this one, right? And so we need to come up with uh, with the answers. And it's it's literally not opening up a, a catalog and saying, okay, which one do you want and how many? Nobody would ever do that, right? So the the goal would be is to to talk to them and say, okay, so let's start with this. And then we're going to see how they do. So like that, that bubble analogy, right? The goal is to get them back to as functional as uh, possible. And then with one device, they will learn what can they do, what can they not do. And that, that then informs um, any additional tools or attachments or devices or a complete device type change because that, uh, that we can see what it is that they're able to do. Let me throw one more idea out there too. It's not just random. It's not just an opinion, but we actually have... Um, outcome measure tools that uh, that would uh, uh, qualify that, um, such that we can say, okay, based on the device that they have, we put them through 
outcome measure testing. And that tells us something. It tells us, you know, are they are they doing well with the device? Or have they trained um, or have they been trained well enough to use it to its fullest capacity? Or is there something that's, uh, that's deficient in either the design, the componentry, um, their lack of knowledge, or what is it? And then focus on those things and change that. So it's not just a random, you know, okay, I think I want a new model this year. That's, that's I mean, we as consumers, we do that, right? When we, uh, when we go shop, uh, shopping for a car, it's like, what's the newest, latest, greatest? That's not always the case. Uh, it, it really shouldn't be the case in, in upper limb prosthetics that, uh, that we look at, you know, a feature list and somehow we just want an upgrade and a, a new model. No, it's about function. It's about finding the right device that makes, makes that, uh, uh, that function possible not just because it happens to be, you know, the new model might be a new model, but they still can do the same thing with their old model. So it doesn't make sense to upgrade for the sake of having a new model. It's not the color of the paint job or the fact that uh, there might be something else that, uh, that they want. It literally should be focused on, on, uh, on the functionality. And I think when we focus on it from that perspective, then, um, you know, we're talking about pay sources. And I guess uh, the, the, the subject is broader than that. Um, but we want to be stewards of those resources. It's not an unlimited money that uh, that we can take advantage of. This is a, a that's a responsibility we all have. And when we talk about those things together with the pay sources, they get on board and they they want to help people. Bottom line, they want to help people as much as possible. That's great to hear. You know, we talk about and Jennifer touched base on. Um, the bubble of activities and how it shrinks down and we want to get that bubble larger. So when my patient comes in for the first first time or second time or whatever, however, however many visits it is, and they start talking about prosthetics and if they have some questions on them, are there an initial set of questions that are best to ask the patient when they're thinking about this? I mean, of course, you know, the patient wants to do everything. They want their bubble as big as possible, but is there a set of questions that you ask each person each patient um, to try to to try to um, like narrow narrow in, narrow in the best process like a checkoff list or like an outline that each one has to follow. Jennifer, I should let you answer it because what I'm thinking of is uh, is exactly what they just described. But but uh, yeah, do you want to talk about the functional activity checklist? Sure. Yeah. So when we have someone come in um, and we want, sometimes we'll ask the patients, what can you do, what you can't you do, and they're not able to express it. And so uh, we will give them um, a functional activity checklist, and I think it's five or six pages long of activities that we do on a frequent basis. And they go through that list and they check, are they able to do it? Are they unable to do it? Is it difficult for them to do? And I ask them to also think about how they're doing the activity. Um, and because I want, if they are changing their body mechanics in order to do it, then um, we, we consider that difficult because if someone is continually using poor posture and body mechanics, they may end up having overuse, musculoskeletal issues, things like that. And it's amazing that um, how as they go through the list, they're like, oh, wow, 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 I realize I'm having difficulty with all of these activities. Then that really helps us to narrow it down as to what needed and then we have to go through the prosthetic option education and relate that to the activities that they're having difficulty with. So it's not so much that we have a list of questions, it's more about um, getting to know the patient, finding out what their living situation is, their work situation, their leisure activities, 
um, what their goals are, how they're feeling about life in general, and then specific activities, educating them on the options, and then helping guide them to decide which device is going to probably return most of those activities. I, I've got a, a, a just a quick story to uh, kind of illustrate that point. Uh, I was working with uh, with an individual. He was a, a longtime user of a, a body powered prosthesis and uh, uh, as an above elbow amputee. And so so he's got a um, a cable and a harness and a hook that's capable of just a few pounds of pinch force. And just as a a, a way to kind of get at the question without asking it directly, so that I just get a hard yes or a hard no, or like what Jennifer would say is I don't even think about that, right? I, would, I asked him a question just to kind of illustrate the point. I said, so um, you and your wife you go out for a nice dinner. What kind of a restaurant do you go to? And so he was talking, and, and uh, what I was listening for was, is he going to a steakhouse? But I didn't tell him that. And uh, so he's saying, yeah, we go to an Italian place. We go to, you know, whatever. And I said, so if you were to go to a steakhouse, um, oh, no, we don't go to steakhouses. Well, why, why is that? Because I can't cut my own steak. And I'm not going to a steakhouse and ask my wife to cut my steak for me, <laughs> right? I mean, that's it's just it, people Very learn real. to avoid. Yeah, people learn to avoid activity and then say they can do everything. And it's like we have to dig a little deeper in order to elicit that response because what we're trying to do is to say everything is back on the table for you, you know, as much as you want it to be, instead of. I've, I've, I've isolated my life and I don't do those things and I, I don't need to do those things. What they're doing is they're coping and they're not acknowledging that with us. And so we have to dig deeper to find those things. And that's, I think, you know, we call it a functional activity checklist. That sounds pretty boring, but it does, it draws them out of, the, of that shell that they've built to, to, uh, to isolate the, uh, the function away from them. It's almost like you form this tunnel vision, like these are my new expectations, these are my new goals, and this is where I need to be at from this point going forward until you show them, no, you have a bigger future in front of you. These are your options. Yeah, exactly. that's right. And, and I would say, you know, um, to, to go the complete opposite, there's, there's the flip side mentality as well, where people will come in and say, um, am I going to be able to play piano with this device? And I say, well, did you play piano before? <laughs> and they'll say, well, no, but I just, I want to know if I'm going to have that option. It's like, well, okay, let's be realistic too. Let's, uh, let's, let's, you know, cause prosthetics are, are, they're not a replacement of our, of our hands. It's a, it's a tool that we wear on a body that, uh, that helps us to do things, albeit differently. They're, they're not a hand replacement, right? Someday I hope that that's the case. I hope that we've got the Luke Skywalker arm that, that really does function the way that science fiction should tell us. We'll get there hopefully, but um, for right now, it's just a matter of, you know, these are tools, they're tools in a toolbox. And how can we use those tools to, uh, to, to their best advantage for you? So that brings up our, that we really have to set expectations because it's often said that the disappointment is the difference between expectations and reality. And so when we are educating patients about their prosthetic options, we really try to paint a very realistic picture of what they will and will not be able to do because we don't want to um, get them excited about this device and then have them be disappointed. So it's very important for us to manage expectations up front. 
So, Pat, every device has their limitations, right? Everything has a precaution. Everything has a contraindication. So can you talk to us about, like, the precautions for using the, the device? And some things that come to mind are, like, maybe there's certain weight limits to certain devices, hot versus cold if they work, like, in a refrigeration facility versus a really warm, like, foundry or factory, dirty versus clean, wet versus dry. Yeah, that's that's a that's a wide range of uh, of of uh, specific issues, right? There's um, I would say that um, there's kind of categories, and it goes back to the prosthetic options, if you will. So the body powered devices are built in a way that they can be exposed to a lot of uh, um, let's say harsher types of environments. Uh, we're talking about water, dust, dirt, vibration, um, heavy forces. Um, you know, mechanical strain, uh, things like that. And myoelectric, and I would just want to kind of compare the two of them. Myoelectrics are, are not built for that same level of intense work. But I want to be very clear, though, that, uh, that there's, there's other factors involved. Meaning, if somebody has the physical power and the excursion available to run a body-powered system and they work in a, in a, you know, kind of a dirty, rough environment, then great. The body-powered is probably the best option for them. If, uh, if, however, though, they've, they've got overuse injuries, their shoulders hurt, um, they need to work in an unrestricted way with their arms within that space, then there are prosthetic devices, even on the myoelectric side, that are more capable and tolerant of some of those uh, environmental exposures, such as uh, um, some of the hands now are waterproof, some of the uh, electric hooks are waterproof, and we're, we're seeing manufacturers kind of cater to this idea that they want their devices to be used in a, in a in those harsher environments, and they're willing to take on the responsibility for warranties, things like that, um, such that uh, people can expand their uh, their application uh, a lot more of these devices than uh, than in previous years. So um, that being said, it still boils down to we still need to evaluate the patient, what their goals are, what their capabilities are, and then align that technology with it. Um, but I would say it this way: you know, we've had. Uh, patients that came in, and, and um, I think of one farmer from, uh, he was from South Dakota. He came in and saying that um, he was met by a, a sales rep, actually, um, from a, a manufacturer that said he should have a uh, an electric hand so he can manipulate all the buttons and switches and things inside of his tractor. And I said, um, you're going to break that hand the first day that you have it. And he said, no, 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 no. That's, they, 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 they said this is what I need. I said, no, you're going to break that hand the first day that you have it. You got to trust me on it. And, uh, and so we got him into a, a, a more rugged, you know, electric hook. He was able to use that. And it was a very powerful and capable tool. And then one day I, I showed him that, uh, that more fragile hand. And he looked at it and said, yeah, you're right. I would have broken that the other uh, day one. And even as it is, the more heavy-duty, rugged electric device still comes in routinely for, uh, for maintenance and care. But that's just part of what needs to be done because he can't tolerate wearing a, a, a body-powered harness, right? So... It's, uh, it still boils down to we, we have to make um, the best decision for the patients. And, and uh, in doing so, there are probably inherent um, design elements that, uh, that we're going to need to take into account. And that's all, again, part of communicating, especially expectations, like Jennifer was saying, expectations to the patient. How, how frequently is it going to break? Expectations to the insurance company. Um, how often are they going to have to pay for it? How long is the warranty? Do we need to extend that warranty? You know, those are all things to, to factor in when uh, when providing care to these uh, to these individuals. So, hopefully, that makes sense. It's not a it's not a hard fast answer. There's a, there's a lot of variability within that.
So what are these devices made of? Is it like a plastic and a titanium? What makes them not rust and waterproof? Yeah, so so um, staying away from uh, from steel is a good idea. Now I'm not talking about stainless steel, but regular steel. Steel is just going to you know corrode no matter what you put on it, and it's going to destroy. Uh, we use lightweight materials, a lot of uh, um, aluminum, titanium, uh, laminations, uh, 3D printed materials that uh, that are either metal or plastic, and and those things are very tolerant of uh, of being exposed to dirt, dust, moisture, etc. Biggest thing is uh, is chemicals. You know, caustic chemicals. No matter what, they're going to destroy things. And so, um, people say, "Well, can I can I go back to work in the chemical plant?" Well, I hope you have you're wearing PPE because if you're exposing your skin to that stuff, it would be just as bad getting that stuff through your skin into your liver as it would be to uh, to get it onto the um, um, onto the prosthesis. Um, but as far as the electronic ones go, then obviously electronics and water don't mix very well. So we try to get the uh, keep the water from getting in there. And that's where the waterproof capabilities come from, the uh, the fabrication techniques, the uh, the silicones, the laminations, the resins that we use. We try to make sure that they're uh, they're they're keeping out the the moisture and things like that from uh, from getting inside it. Um, so yeah, that's that's we don't make them out of wood, and we try to keep away from leather as much as possible. If leather is important, it's it's probably because it's a harness, something that's going to go on there their uh, uh, more you know, proximal portion of their body for comfort's sake. Um, but otherwise, we would uh, stick with plastics, thermoplastics, and, uh, and titanium, and, and uh, you know, whenever we can. I'm going to kind of switch gears now and um, talk about, I have, let's say I have a prosthetic or an amputee patient that comes into our clinic. How early do you want to be involved in this process? What sorts of things do you need to know? What sorts of things should I know? Um, and what qualifies a patient um, for some of the prosthetic devices? Well, Jennifer, I'll, I'll start um, just with a quick, but I, I think you probably have some, some things to add on to it. Um, <clears throat> here's what I would say. The earlier, the better that we can get involved. Um, and that literally means from the time of uh, initial injury. And because there's a lot of things that are going on in those early days that are, that are being, decisions being made about amputation levels, decisions being made about um, how to manage uh, soft tissue and the nerve system, things like that. And I know you guys have uh, worked with patients, have heard of uh, uh, targeted muscle renovation, um, RPNIs, the regenerative uh, peripheral nerve interfaces, things like that. These, these surgeries, um, are meant to uh, two things. One is to uh, to manage painful neuromas, uh, preventing them from taking place, and the second thing is to uh, to enhance prosthetic control. And studies have uh, come out in the last couple of years that are are very strongly pointing to the fact that uh, that these dev uh, these surgeries, um, the sooner the patients can have access to the surgeries, the better the outcomes are. And so we want to be talking about those things. And and uh, you know most of the time. Um, the, the surgeons are well aware and they're already planning on them. But if, uh, if not, uh, we want to talk about that. And, you know, think about um, partial hand injuries. How many partial hand injuries have you seen that were exactly the same? <laughs> and I would guess, yeah, you're shaking your head. I would None. guess zero, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so the I idea that, um, you know, preserving length is important, but sometimes preserving length can actually um, get in the way of, uh, of function um, from a prosthetic standpoint, and it wouldn't necessarily benefit from uh, function if it was without a prosthesis. So 
you know, thinking through those things, we want to talk about uh, what are their goals and what are the options and what can we do and what can we not do. So bottom line is, can we get involved as fast as possible? And and then especially maybe um, Jennifer, you could touch on this a little bit. If they did get TMR, there's a there's an urgency to getting into training right after that, so that, uh, that the the muscle signals actually heal and come in in a uh, in a way that's more meaningful. Um, so I'll, I'll pass it to Jennifer for that. Yeah. So uh, targeted muscle reinnervation. Um, it, it's very helpful if you do TMR exercises afterward. Um, we leave the patient alone for the first three weeks and, and let that co-opting of a nerve to the um, the muscle's nerve um, kind of heal. Um, and then after that, we want them to start to be moving their phantom limb and start to get that message coming from the brain down the nerve and, and um, interacting with the muscle, even if we don't see a muscle contraction at that point. Um, and then as we start to see twitches in the muscle, then we're going to um, actually have them trying to contract that muscle. Um, and so that usually happens about three months. And so really we need to be following these patients right from the beginning and um, to make sure that they re-innervate well and they have um, their muscle contractions are isolated and separated from other muscle contractions to help with um, being able to um, isolate the electrical signals for controlling a prosthetic device. Um, so that's, you know, just an example of um, how we need to get involved early on. Um, but I would like to say that these patients really need a full team. And so at, at, even if we know someone's having an amputation, they haven't had the amputation yet, if we can assemble the team ahead of time to talk about it, um, that is so helpful. Um, helpful for making plans, but really helpful for the patient because if they can be educated on their prosthetic options and to know what they uh, may and may not be able to do functionally after an amputation, it really seems to give those patients hope. Um, and so the sooner that we can all get together and discuss um, it, the, the better. Yeah, I'm just going to touch light on that as well. You know, we've had multiple patients at our facility that, you know, we do talk to you right away. And something that I love that we do is we set up these virtual meetings with, you know, Pat and Jennifer and myself and the patient, and we can go through things and you guys can see the hand. And I think that's, that's great um, that, that you guys offer that and we're able to do that. So I think that that's an option for a lot of people that they don't always have to travel to you right away in Minnesota that, you know, we can kind of meet virtually one of the, the goods of um, some technology. So once you ha get a referral from our clinic and we talk with the patient and we decide what prosthetic is going to fit them best in that transition on that waiting period of for insurance to authorize and to get approval, what are some things that you're looking for the therapist to do with the patient? Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I should just explain that I specialize in upper limb prosthetic rehabilitation, right? I am actually am not a hand therapist, and so I really rely on the local therapist to help to prepare the patient for the prosthetic fitting, and then to be there as a partner throughout the fitting, and then to follow up with the patient afterward. And so um, we will decide on a prosthetic device, but then we have to get authorization from the insurance company, and there's a lag time. 
And in the meantime, what um, I like the local therapist to do is all the things that they normally would do with someone after an injury. Um, and so there's the, it's the perioperative phase is what, what we call it. And the, we're focusing on healing. And so um, we need to be working on desensitization, managing their pain, uh, range of motion, strength, um, doing a, a functional assessment, a psychological assessment, just kind of helping that patient, um, maybe teaching the patient how to do things one-handed with the best body mechanics possible, talking to, that, to them about adaptive equipment. And those are all things that I will follow through on once the patient comes to the clinic to be fit with the prosthetic device. Um, but the majority of that will be done at their, with their local therapist. And it's extremely helpful for the success of the, the prosthetic fitting um, if we have a therapist, a hand therapist that's helping us out with that. Yes, you know, I think of the things that I'm doing, you know, with my patients as far as, you know, like you kind of touched base on the desensitization, the scar management, something that I find that is extremely helpful is not only, you know, working maybe distally on strength, but proximally on strength too. If it's, let's say, a transradial amputation, you know, we're going to need those, those shoulder internal external rotators and that deltoid to be strong, to be able to carry, you know, this device and to utilize it, you know, about space in front of our body. Um, even the shaping of the limb, you know, and, and mm -hmm. those are things that I find myself working on quite a bit with our patients here. Yeah. And we really appreciate that because then they come to us ready to be able to tolerate wearing the device ready to function with it. Talking about the device and, and, and functioning with it. Um, Pat, would you say there is an average weight of a device with a socket? Just so, you know, working with a patient for that pre-prosthetic, you know, how much should I expect that residual limb to be able to sustain? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's, uh, it does depend a little bit on the, um, on the type of device. Um, let's go heaviest. So the heaviest devices are the myoelectrics. And the reason is because the, uh, the weight of the motors and the batteries add on to, uh, to, to the prosthesis. The prosthesis itself, so the the, the socket, um, the the forearm shell, that sort of thing, that that weighs very little, and it's so close to the body that it really doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel heavy at all to them. But as soon as you put a hand on there, now you're talking about something that's further away from the body, so it it extends, you know, the the, the weight of it past their their anatomy, and it feels heavier than it actually is. And so the average weight of a uh, of a of a hand, just an electric hand, is about a pound. Um, which sounds surprising. It doesn't sound like a lot, but imagine now your arm being half of the length that it was before and then carrying a pound um, a foot out from your, your, your elbow. So it, it's, uh, it does add up because of the, uh, the torque that's placed on it and, and in effect gravity. Um, so I would say plan on, you know, if you were to work up to five pounds of, of uh, lifting, that would be more than adequate for uh, just, you know, carrying a prosthesis around. Plus, it's not so burdensome to the individual to uh, to work with five pounds um, before they come in and get fit. So I, I think five pounds is probably a good place to start, just knowing then it's going to get lighter. What I also like doing is I, I put the prosthesis on. We use materials that are extra heavy on purpose. No kidding. It's <laughs> just because <laughs> of the, the way that we use heavier materials for the initial prosthesis. So when we get to the final one, we can actually make it lighter weight. And they'll always say, oh, I feel so much lighter now that it's complete. 
I love that, you know, versus the opposite, where if, if I would give them the final one, it was heavier, they'd say, oh, come on, I, I can't carry this anymore. Um, so, so yeah, we, we want to definitely take that into account. Um, the other thing I'll say about weight, though, if we are talking about a body-powered prosthesis, it's not just the carried weight of the prosthesis that, uh, that's concerning. It's the, uh, the amount of effort that they have to put through the, uh, the harness itself and into the cable to operate the mechanism. And so that's where that proximal uh, strengthening, the upper body strengthening is going to come into play, is that if they've got to pull on a harness and a cable system, it, it could be, you know, five ounces. It doesn't matter, but they're going to have to pull with, you know, five to ten pounds of force just to get a hook to open up. And that all has to come through their their proximal shoulder. So if uh, if they're not ready for that, it doesn't matter how light I make the prosthesis. That cable system is going to be the uh, the death of that. So we want to pay attention to uh, to yes, the residual limb strengthening, the proximal limb strengthening. All those things matter when it uh, when it comes to uh, getting them ready. Uh, Jennifer, not to put you on the spot, but I'm just taking a step back when Shelly was talking about how to prepare a patient for that fitting. Do you have any examples that you can maybe give our listeners? So we have a lot of rural therapists that don't necessarily have access to a hand center or a specialty clinic like what we see here with a lot of amputations. In your experience, can you alert us on anything on not to do or something that you've experienced in the past that has maybe had a setback of a, a prosthetic fitting that maybe could have been done better in the in the future? Well, um, I guess I can think about, you know, sometimes if they're wrapping the limb and if they're not wrapping the limb correctly, and so the limb ends up being kind of bulbous at the end because they've been wrapping more um, proximal, um, you know, that that's an issue. Um, also, um, I, I don't know that it's, it's a therapist's fault, but just in general, what um, we see sometimes is that people are immobilized for a long time, like a finger or even adjacent fingers that aren't injured, they end up being immobilized. And then once that um, it's removed, um, they have lost a lot of function and sometimes can't regain that, that range of motion. Um, and so I guess beyond that, I can't think of anything specific, um, but we want to get these patients moving as soon as possible. We want to be able to get the, the edema out of the limb um, in a proper way um, and then just make sure that we're working on strengthening range of motion, um, you know, and just helping them with their pain. Do you have a specific handout, step-by-step -step process of how to properly wrap an amputated limb, whether it's a finger or even like an arm stump? You know, I guess we don't really, really have that. Um, no. <laughs> okay. I was just maybe thinking like, maybe we could have. Oh, yeah. I, go ahead. I would volunteer, though, to do a Zoom meeting with anybody, and I yes. think pretty much anybody, and and teach people how to do it. So yes. it's a, it's pretty straightforward. Once they get the hang of it, it's a, it's it actually can be very easy. Um, the idea of wrapping it, you know, we're talking about ace bandages mostly, right? Or a compressor grip, or maybe even a, a stump shrinker. Um, in upper limb prosthetics, the uh, the shrinkers themselves, the pre-made off-the-shelf ones, because of the wide variety of limb shape. The, the off-the-shelf ones um, don't have as much of an effect as, as wrapping it with an ace bandage. So if somebody can really get down how to wrap it with an ace bandage and do it effectively, that's going to be the best possible scenario for, for that early edema control and prevention. One other thing I was going to throw out there, too, that J Jennifer didn't mention, we talked a lot about proximal limb strength, strengthening, um, but also we've seen um, 
where the residual limb is ignored. And so if they were going to be using a myoelectric, there's not really a, a visible activity that people can see them doing for foreign musculature that's not attached because there's no wrist or fingers left, right? Um, but to, uh, to, to not pay attention to the forearm means that they might lose connection between the, the thought process and the actual physical contraction of those residual muscles such that it makes it much more challenging to get them fit with, let's say, a, a myoelectric prosthesis. So residual limb musculature is also something I would say we, uh, we definitely want to pay attention to. Okay, great. Thank you. And I was I asked that just because we can always include handouts in our show notes. But um, I guess now we can just tune in and have a virtual visit with you. <laughs> yeah. Great. We'd love it. Yeah. Okay, so now at this point, the patient comes back to our, our facility, they've been fitted with their device, they have their education tools, and your job is pretty much done. Now, what is the therapist's role when they go back to their uh, regular clinic? All right, so that really depends on what device they have, how complicated it is, and how they've done when they've been with us for their um, comprehensive accelerated fitting process. And maybe I should just quickly explain what that means, is that we have our patients come to us to be fit with their initial device, and they're with us for two to maybe five days, although it's, it's not very often, it's five days, but if it's a very complex fitting, maybe. Um, and during that time, they are fit with the initial device and they go through training with me. Um, and so it's, it's very intensive. And I'm working um, with them to make sure they understand the device, they understand how to control it free in space, meaning they're able to open and close it, but they're not trying to grasp anything. And then I move on to having them grasp, hold, move, and release um, different types of um, items, different sizes and shapes. And then when they're ready, when they have built some confidence, then I move them into basic functional activities. And then usually at the end of that first time that they're with us, they're, they're doing pretty well with the device. And we, we decide at that time, are um, they going to take the prosthesis home and use it in their own environment for a while? And in that case, then the local therapist can get involved. And then I would be communicating with the local therapist on where the patient is at with their control and use of the device and uh, help to guide um, what should be done in the clinic. Um, sometimes, though, if the device is fitting well, functioning well, we take the device and then we create the definitive device. And what that means then is that they will come back after the definitive device is, is completed. And then I do more training with them. And then when they go back, we interface with the local therapist, depending on, on what the needs are. Um, so it's, it's not really possible for me to say specifically what it's going to be. But if it's a complex fitting of a myoelectric and someone is, is having difficulty reaching out away from their body with the device, keeping their musculature relaxed so that the hand doesn't kind of open and close sporadically, then um, we would be starting there. Uh, but it might be that the patient is functioning quite well with the device, and then we just need the local therapist to be working on um, function. But 
the, the great thing is, is that we do have technology of phone and video, um, and so that we can all work together even from a distance to help progress that patient until they're completely independent and returning to all of their life activities. Yeah, I think that's something that I find, you know, when the patient comes back, you know, to our clinic and I'm doing some of the, that prosthetic training with them, you know, a lot of those repetitive drills, drills not only supported on the tabletop, but out in space, you know, the mm -hmm. side of my body, across my body, below, above, all of that kind of makes a difference in how that, that socket is fitting on there. Um, even, you know, speed of opening and closing, not crushing a plastic cup, those sorts of things are the, are what I'm finding I'm having to work um my, with my patients uh, on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one thing to add to that, I would say too, that um, uh, be, we're, we're talking about a, a regional approach to, uh, to patient care with a team that's kind of scattered over multiple states, which is, you know, it's certainly not ideal, but the, uh, the patient population for, uh, for upper limb uh, prosthetics is, uh, it's just that it's, it just is required. Um, but when talk about uh, new patients, just for a quick second, when new patients um, get fit with a prosthesis, you know, even if we've done a good job of uh, residual limb modeling and uh, and edema control things like that, their limb is going to change. And uh, and and Shelly, you just mentioned that uh, you know uh, tracking how they can use the device out from their body, away from you know out in space, and then with loading and without loading. Um, if you see a change in the uh, the control of the prosthesis, it's time for us to get back in touch with the other uh, patient because likely their limb is changing and uh, and their, their limb shape is gonna alter the uh, the way that they interact with the prosthesis significantly. And we'll see limbs that, uh, that are not mature from the time of amputation until maybe a year or so after their, uh, their last surgery. So we, we wanna know from your perspective too, what's going on and uh, to get that feedback as well is really, really important for ongoing care. So Jennifer, when you see a patient back, let's say it's like a two or three month follow up and they have a little bit of skin breakdown or maybe there's a section just not quite fitting right. What are the steps that you guys do to make sure that that fit is a little bit better before they go back home? Yeah, so um, it, what's really nice is that Pat and I work in the same office. And so if there's any fit problem at all throughout the whole process of fitting or follow up, is that I can just go grab Pat and say, you know, look, there's a spot here that in the skin that's a little red or um, and we certainly don't want to ever see any actual breakdown. We want to catch it before that. And we we um, educate our patients on a wearing schedule and um, we tell them if you see a red spot on your skin after you take the device off, it doesn't go away within 20 minutes then you need to let us know because that might mean that there's too much pressure. Um, but the good thing is that um, Pat is able then to take the prosthesis, make changes as needed, and then we can continue right away with therapy. And I can be monitoring and then, oh, well, we need some more changes. Pat comes in, he makes the changes and we can continue on. Um, so that's why I really love that model of having the therapist and the prosthetist together. Um, but the fit of the device is the most important thing from my perspective. I can do therapy with patients for hours upon hours. If they do not have a well-fitting prosthesis, we're not going to get anywhere. Um, and so um, we really focus on making sure that the prosthesis fits well and is comfortable and doesn't cause any type of skin breakdown. 
What if the patient can't get back to you for a, a touch-up or a tune-up? What do you suggest uh, the, the, the home therapist to be doing? You want to take that one, Pat, in terms of having it may be mailed in? Yeah. So that's, I was just going to say, put it in a box and ship it. <laughs> you know, okay. UPS is, uh, is amazing for, uh, for connecting distances between, between us and uh, the patient. And, uh, it, you know, it sounds strange. Uh, if they need a tune-up or a touch-up, um, does it need to be something that I, I have to inspect physically on the, on the person's body? Then, yeah, they've got to get in their car and come on over. Um, if it's something that uh, they say, hey, um, this, this, uh, I, I need it adjusted for, you know, or screw comes out, um, you know, put it in a box, ship it to us. We'll take care of it. If, uh, if something is damaged or broken or come apart, um, put it in a box, ship it to us. We'll fix it and send it back. Um, so the UPS is a great way to, uh, to handle that. Um, and, and then if, uh, if, if there's a reason for them to be here, then, then we, we just say, we've got to, again, it, it goes back to setting expectations. If, uh, if, uh, if they're not aware that uh, that they need to be here, then we have to explain that to them on the front end so that they're they're planning for those things when uh, when the time comes. Because I'll tell people, I say, I promise you that if I can build it, you will break it <laughs> because that's the nature of prosthetics. The nice thing though is that most repairs, you know, take a matter of hours or maybe if we've got to ship it off to manufacturer, it's pretty quick to uh, to get those repairs done. Okay, good to know. Thank you for that tip. So I guess if there's anything else that you want to add at this point, maybe some clinical pearls, some takeaways, um, if, if our listeners are only listening for 30 seconds, like what are the biggest takeaways that you would say right now? Well, I'll start with one. Call us sooner than later and uh, get started in the process uh, right away when, before the amputation is finally decided on. And, uh, and then constant communication, right? Because uh, if we know what each other's needs are, what, uh, what's going on, I think um, best outcomes can happen. Jennifer, what uh, what's your thoughts? Yeah, that's what I was going to say too, that, you know, just start it as soon as possible. Get the patient fit with the, the appropriate device. Get training. Um, we need to be following them with outcome measures, but then also just following up with them um, every six months for the rest of the prosthetics um, device and, and just be communicating as a team. That's really what helps with success. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so at this point, so we ask all of our, our interviewers three hot seat questions at the end of this, just to make it fun and just to thank you for your time with us. So since Shelly knows you guys better than I do, she's going to ask you each some, some hot seat questions. All right, Pat, this one's for you first. If I came to Maple Grove, where is the best place to eat? Oh my gosh! You know, um, you need to come here because uh, you'll you'll understand why I have a difficult time answering that question. We live in the middle of a retail area, and uh, there's literally within walking distance five amazing restaurants. But I would have to say, if I picked one, it would have to be a place called Redstone. They do uh, um, uh, kind of Americana food. It's it's really fun place, good atmosphere, and um, uh, best roast, best rotisserie chicken on the planet. So <laughs> I know it sounds weird. Rotisserie chicken, get that at Costco. No, seriously, you got to try that. It's really, really good. And their cornbread. It's amazing. <clears throat> cornbread is like dessert. It's awesome. I would have picked Redstone too, but if you want Italian, I'd say Biagi's. That's awesome too. All right. Jennifer, where is the best attraction in Maple Grove to go to? 
Um, attraction. You know, when I think about our patients that are traveling, I think um, of the Mall of America. That's what everyone thinks about. Um, there is good shopping here at Arbor Lakes in Maple Grove. Um, but if you want more outdoor type activities, there's the Elm Creek um, Park Reserve um, that, you know, offers, you know, beautiful trails, um, things like that. Or if you want to go to Minneapolis, I would say um, the Minnehaha um, Park that has the Minnehaha Falls, that has the creek that um, flows into the Mississippi. There's a lot of trails around there. There's actually a lot to see and do around here, so it really just depends. And um, Cindy, who's our um, our center patient coordinator. She actually has an electronic list that she'll send to patients if they're interested, and she has all kinds of activities and and attractions um, to to do while you're here. Okay, so uh, Pat, where's your favorite place to travel? Favorite place to travel? Well, um, I have to say that I I am. Uh, Born and raised in Minnesota, and I, I love exploring all throughout the state. But um, if I if I said take me anywhere, um, I've traveled a lot to Vienna in my previous job for uh, um, the manufacturer that I worked for. Um, one of their headquarters was there, so I traveled to Vienna sometimes three, four times a year for for about eight years. And I love that city. I love going into that city. There's a lot of history there. I like the uh, the museums are amazing. Plus the uh, the Kind of the the classical music culture that's that's still there and very very prevalent is uh, is fantastic. And uh, you talk about uh, great places to uh, to eat. You know, I was at a restaurant there that's older than our country, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's kind of cool. And and on the ceiling of this this restaurant, um, you can see Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's signature right on the ceiling. So oh, cool. pretty uh, pretty awesome. What about you, Jennifer? Where would you like to travel? Well, my favorite place to travel is Spain, and I have to say that's because we had a foreign exchange student when I was a senior in high school, Ava, and uh, Ava lives in Spain, and um, I've been there twice, and uh, she's been back with her family. We've had one of their kids as a foreign exchange student for a year, and another one that lived with us, uh, I think, five summers. And so I just have that connection, and I love I love Spain. It's a little bit warmer than here. There's a lot of sights to see, um, and it's it's beautiful. So whenever I think about travel, that's kind of where I I wish I could go. All right, back to you, Pat. What is your special talent? If oh you have boy! One. If I yeah, if I have one, well, it's a recent thing. I um I have gotten recently into roasting coffee. Oh, and, and and not you know people say have you ground coffee lately? It's like no, it's not grinding coffee. It's roasting coffee. So literally, <laughs> I buy uh, green beans from a, a wide variety of places and and really enjoy roasting my own uh, coffee right in my in, in my house. And uh, and I I have given it away as gifts. I've uh, sold it to, to some places. But uh, um, if you're looking for a really good cup of coffee, I could go down a rabbit trail with you. That uh, that is very very deep and very very long, um, and I won't bore you with the details right now. But uh, love a good cup of coffee and love sharing coffee with uh, with friends and family. Well, you can send that to twenty three twenty three North <laughs> Castle, Appleton, Wisconsin. Cassie and I both love coffee. <laughs> awesome. All right, next time I'm out there, we're bringing some along. So Excellent. yeah. <laughs> How about you, Jennifer? What is your special talent? 
Oh, I don't know that I have a, any special talent now later in life. Um, a little known fact is that I used to BMX bike when I bike race when I was younger and wow. loved, loved like mudding, taking my parents uh, three wheeler or their Jeep out into, you know, trails and in the mud and getting the Jeep stuck and putting a hole in the gas tank and <laughs> things like that. Um, nowadays, I don't know. I I said my special talent is that I can take a nap anywhere. <laughs> Tired. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us today. We really appreciate uh, your time away from the clinic and um, just all of the the clinical pearls that you've given us. Yes. Thank you so much. You're you're oh, very welcome, you guys. It's a it's a pleasure to be here and to uh, to have this conversation. It's obviously something we're all very passionate about. So thanks for letting us join you. Yeah, we love partnering with Hand to Shoulder. I've I've been very impressed, and I was even more impressed when I found out that you have a podcast. I mean, how progressive oh. is that? So <laughs> thank well, you very much. Steve, oh, yeah. I hope Steve is jealous. Uh, I think uh, he missed out on a great opportunity today. <laughs> well, tell him hi from us. Yeah, <laughs> please do. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, all you right. guys. Thank you. Thank you both. All right. Thanks. Shelly, that was a great discussion. Like, I can't even, I don't even know where to begin on all the things that I just learned. Uh, thank you so much for inviting them to join us for this podcast. And uh, I just, I hope that our listeners really have a lot of takeaways from this. Yes, I've been working with prosthetic patients for a while now, as well as working with Pat and Jennifer for a while. And I find I'm always learning something new from them every time we talk. Um, I really hope that this podcast sheds some light on the prosthetic options for our patients, how to better serve our patients, as well as just learning to have that good relationship with the patient's prosthetist because we can just learn so much from them. Right. And for all of our listeners, you know, this is hopefully you have a lot of takeaways as far as, you know, if you're in the rural community or even if you're a CHT for a long time and you're a veteran in the hand uh, world of therapy, you know, there's always something to take away from a specialty, especially, you know, working with something that you usually see every day right like prosthetics so we hope that you got a lot of takeaways from this and uh, please leave us a five-star rating when you uh, join in on our podcast and you can go to h2s therapist at newhands.net newhands with an s.net and give us any feedback or anything you want to hear in the future thank you for joining us and uh, we hope that you join us again for the next episode